0: Good morning. morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Father in heaven, we are again thankful to be able to come together and uh, join with friends around the globe who are interested in learning more of you and, uh, and walking the path that you have designed for us. We ask that your spirit will join us and lighten our minds and help us to become radiant lights of your kingdom's principles in this world. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Uh, We are doing Lesson 5 in the Quarterly, How to Interpret Scripture, and the title this week is, By Scripture Alone, Sola Scriptura. And, And before we get into the details, we received an email this week from one of our online class members, Ron Holman, who sent the following, The trouble with Scripture is not what we don't understand. The trouble with Scripture is what we do understand and do not apply to our lives. Psalms 119.105, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. He goes on to say, A lamp gives us just enough light to safely take a few steps at a time. A lamp does not light up the entire length of the path if we stand still. If we want to have light for our journey, we must step forward into the light. We cannot expect God to give us more light if we do not follow the light he has already given us. This is very well said. Well said. The captain can guide a giant ship with a small rudder, but only if the ship is moving. So this is a really good point. People who want more truth have to be willing to apply into their lives the truth they currently understand and have a heart that is eager to advance in the truth. And frankly, we'll talk about this in our lesson today, there are many people who actually don't want more truth because more truth will mean changes to their life that they don't want to make. And so they they stay stuck. And when they stop moving forward in the truth, then they actually, the truth they have, the Bible says, becomes darkness. The light they have becomes darkness to them. So let's read the uh, first paragraph in our lesson. It says, the Protestant claim of sola... Scripture alone, Sola Scriptura, elevated Scripture to the sole standard and decisive source for theology. In contrast to Roman Catholic theology, which emphasized Scripture and tradition, the Protestant faith emphasized the key word alone. That is, Scripture alone is the final authority when matters of faith and doctrine are at issue. The lesson correctly points out that the Bible is to be the source of theological truth, not the Bible plus equal weight and value to church tradition. This is the original meaning of the phrase Sola Scriptura. Sola Scriptura was not intended, though, to suggest that Scripture is the only and exclusive source of truth, but to state that Scripture is not to be united with man-made traditions in interpreting it or negating it. That was the point. In fact, if we recall from our Lesson 1 of this quarter, there were five Soles. All of them were not intended to mean only the one element identified, but to divorce that element from something specific that had been attached to it and was undermining that truth. And the others were Solafida, uh, by faith alone, was to teach... By faith and not by faith plus works, sola gratia, by grace alone, was to teach by grace and not by grace plus human works. Sola Christus, uh, solus Christus, or solo Christo, by Christ or through Christ alone, uh, by Christ alone, not by Christ plus the sacraments of the Church. And solio dio gloria, glory to God alone, was to teach glory goes to God, not glory to God plus glory to the church. So we see that faith alone did not mean faith without grace. Grace alone did not mean grace without Christ. And so this idea that, that um Sola Scriptura means scripture all by itself without anything else is not actually what the term means. It simply means that scripture divorced from church traditions. That's simply what it means. Our doctors must come from the scripture and be consistent with scripture, not from church councils or papal rulings. The idea that scripture is to be used all by itself without nature and without experience giving insight and understanding to the Scripture is a tradition. This interpretation of Scripture all alone is a tradition that many Protestants have developed that was not in its original meaning that we must reject. And so it's very interesting. They say we shouldn't merge sola scriptura or Scripture with tradition, and they create an entire doctrine based solely on their traditional interpretation of what it means and then reject the true application of what it means. Second paragraph reads, In the It was the Bible that gave the decisive force and authority to the Protestant Reformation in its revolt against Rome and the errors it had been teaching for centuries. Over against an allegorical interpretation of scripture where many different meanings were read into the Bible, biblical text, the Protestant Reformation emphasized the importance of a grammatical, historical interpretation of the Bible which took seriously the grammar and literary meaning of the Bible text. So I want to go over the different, different uh, rules of exegesis or determining what a text means. The the method advocated here is the historical grammatical method, and that is when one strives to understand the author's original intended meaning in the text, what the words meant that the author wrote and the author was trying to convey the meaning. That's what we want to understand. That's the uh, the view of many conservative Protestant groups. The historical critical method, which is different than the historical grammatical method, the historical critical method, or also known as higher criticism, is the method that investigates the origins of the ancient texts in order to understand the world or the culture in which they had arisen in, looking for the cultural applications and understanding of the day rather than what the author was intending when he wrote it. So a simple example for us today would be if some author wrote um, the following. He's a gay fellow. The historical grammatical method would seek to understand what the author meant by those words. Did the author mean that this was a happy person, or did the author mean that this was a homosexual person? The historical critical method, though, would not seek to under, under determine what the author meant, but would, would simply say, well, in the culture of our day, gay means um, homosexual, so that's what we understand it to mean. They take the, cultural, um, the primary cultural um, use of the word as the way they understand the meaning. And then the third way is revealed exegesis. And this posits that the Holy Spirit inspired the authors of the Bible to write things beyond the Bible writer's own understanding. And the Bible contains deeper truths and deeper meanings than the authors themselves intended when they wrote it. Each of these methods have their strengths and their weaknesses. The lesson prefers the historical grammatical method, which is common to a lot of Protestant groups. But I can assure you with 100% certainty that the authors don't use it exclusively. They use other methods at the same time. Here's two quotes from one of the founders of the uh, Seventh-day Adventist Church. I want you to consider whether you agree with this approach and, and, and whether you apply this approach to how you read Scripture and whether you think the lesson authors do. Um, the first is Christ in His Heavenly Sanctuary, page 103. No truth is more clearly taught in the Bible than that God is, by His Holy Spirit, especially directs His servants on earth in the great movements for carrying forward the work of salvation. Men are instruments in the hand of God, employed by him to accomplish his purposes of grace and mercy. Each has his part to act, and each is granted a measure of light, adapted to the necessities of his time, and sufficient to enable him to perform the work which God has given him to do. And that's really, uh, I'm just going to pause there, there's an important idea in that that, uh, statement, and that is, if God ever calls you to an action... God always enables you with the gifts necessary to complete the action. He'll never call you to do something he doesn't provide the resources and abilities for you to do. Continue on with the quote. But no man, however honored of heaven, has ever attained to a full understanding of the great plan of salvation, or even to a perfect appreciation of the divine purpose in the work for his own time. Men do not fully understand what God would accomplish by the work which he gives them to do. They do not comprehend in all its bearings the message which they utter in his name. Even the prophets who were favored with the special illumination of the Spirit did not fully comprehend the import of the revelations committed to them. The meaning was to be unfolded from age to age as the people of God should near, need the instruction therein contained. Wow, that sounds a whole lot to me like the revealed exegesis method. And then from the book Desire of Ages, 494. Often as Jesus presented the Old Testament scriptures and showed their application to himself in his work of atonement, the disciples had been awakened by his spirit and lifted into a heavenly atmosphere. Of the spiritual truths spoken by the prophets, the disciples had a clearer understanding than had the original authors themselves. So do we believe that all of these methods, do we agree with these ideas? Do you use the ideas just described in these quotations? Does history and evidence support them to be true, that over the course of time, more and more truth has been derived from Scripture than the people at the time even understood. Consider the book of Daniel, who was given a specific instruction that the book should be sealed to the end of time. He didn't understand. He asked for it. Didn't get insights into everything. Consider any field of study. Science, medicine, mathematics, automotive technology. Isn't it true that as truths are understood by one generation and taught to the next generation, that with each generation, more truths are added to the truths currently understood. In other words, truth unfolds. Isn't it true in any field of study? Wouldn't that be true for biblical knowledge as well? If we use strictly the historical grammatical method, then we cannot gain more from Scripture than the original authors understood and intended when they wrote it. It would severely limit our understanding, our capacity for growth, the agency of the Holy Spirit who inspired both the prophets and enlightens those of us who study scripture. So I think, my view, all methods have their value and, when used correctly, can be used together, integrated. But the biggest problem I have with any of these methods is it doesn't address the assumptions a person has when they come to the scripture. And the critical assumption that clouds the interpretation of scripture is when people come believing that God's law functions like human law, system of rules, without consequence, other than the ruling authority, polices breaches in the rule, and the ruling authority punishes rule breakers. When you come to the Bible with that presupposition, then... It doesn't matter what method you use. You artificially bring in a distortion of God's character, a distortion of God's government, a distortion of God's method, and ultimately make God out to look like Satan in character. And that's the biggest corruption. Sunday's lesson it says, "From the beginning, Seventh-day Adventists have considered themselves to be people of the book—that is, Bible-believing Christians." To affirm the biblical principle of Sola Scriptura by Scripture alone, we acknowledge the unique authority of the Bible. Scripture alone is the ruling norm for our theology and the ultimate authority for life and doctrine. Other sources such as religious experience, human reason, or tradition are subservient to the Bible. In fact, the Sola Scriptura principle was intended to safeguard the authority of Scripture from dependence upon the Church and its interpretation. And it rule and it ruled ruled out the possibility that the standard of its interpretation should come from outside the Bible. So I want to affirm the Seventh-day Adventist Church its official position and method used to form church doctrine is it must be found in scripture. I want to affirm that. The Seventh-day Adventist Church believes that the Bible teaches the Holy Spirit give spiritual gifts to people, and that one of those gifts is the gift of prophecy, and that one of the founding members of the Adventist Church, Ellen White, received the gift of prophecy, in which she had special revelations, visions, dreams, and was visited and spoken to by angels. This is a similar claim to Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon Church, who also claimed to have special revelation been visited and spoken to by angels, particularly the angel Moroni. So what is different between Ellen White's experiences and approach to Scripture and Joseph Smith's experiences and approach to Scripture? Does their attitude towards Scripture and how their writings are used in relationship to Scripture give insight into whether one was more likely inspired by God than the other? So Ellen White herself subordinated her writings to Scripture. She called her writings the Lesser Light, whose primary purpose was to lead people back to the Greater Light, the Bible. Her writings were not used in the formation of the doctrines of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Uh, historically, um, the brethren of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, the leading men, would get together and study out a theological topic from Scripture, and after they came to a solid scriptural foundation for the particular doctrine, sometimes then Ellen White would get a vision or a dream or an inspiration that in fact agreed with or confirmed the conclusion that came from Scripture. Uh, in this book... Um, Ron Duffield's book, The Return of the Latter Rain, Volume 1, a historical review of the Seventh-day Adventist history from 1844 to 1891. He does a great job of providing the historical quotations, references, and writings of the pioneers that document how these doctrines were founded. And he sadly goes on to demonstrate how Jones and Wagner um, formed and came along with the doctrine of Righteous by Faith, which Ellen White supported, but sadly, many of the leading church leaders rejected that and went down the penal legal model, which still infects the church today. But perhaps the most important point for Seventh-day Adventist is the following words from Ellen White regarding her own writings. It's found in Testimonies, Volume 5, page 691. This is what Ellen White wrote. And the testimonies, by the way, are shorthand for her writings. She said, If the testimonies speak not according to the word of God, reject them. That's quite profound. That's a subordination that her writings are to be tested by the scriptures. So she's telling us that if we find ever a time where there's a contradiction between her writings and the Bible, then we should reject what her writings say. The Bible is the standard. This is in sharp contrast to Joseph Smith, who took the position that his work was to correct and improve the Bible. That the Bible had many errors in it, and the angel and the spirit that moved upon him was to improve upon, correct, and to correct the scripture. Thus, the scripture was to be tested by his writings. Exactly the opposite. I'll leave it up to you to decide which you believe is um, more consistent with the Holy Spirit. This is why I, though, value... Uh, Ellen White's writings, because they're always subordinate to Scripture, and I only believe those things which I can find supported in Scripture, and I don't value Joseph Smith's writings. Now, I was quite heartened by the Lessons uh, author's position that said the following in the quote we just read. The sola scriptura principle was intended to safeguard the authority of Scripture from dependence upon the Church and its interpretation. This is an excellent point. It, and I think it would, they would, would have to agree that it means that a group of theologians working for, say, a biblical research institute did not have the authority to interpret Scripture for the rest of us. That the Bible remains its own authority. But sadly for many Christians in many denominations, it often doesn't work this way. For many Christians, when Bible questions arise... They often seek a theologian, a pastor, a commentary, a research council to tell them the answer. And these research institutes end up becoming authorities over the Bible, all the while claiming that they only believe the authorities in the Bible. We should respect our church leaders, those who have dedicated their lives to the study of Scripture. We should thoughtfully, prayerfully, honestly consider examine, study out the ideas that they present to us, but we should not surrender our individuality, our minds, our thinking to them, and simply believe because a person with an academic degree or who holds a church office says so. We should only believe because we have examined the evidence for ourselves and understand it and agree with it, because it's actually true. And remember, we can disagree and still respect and love those with whom we disagree. It's okay. Every person fully persuaded in their own mind. We can still view people who hold different theological views with love and respect and be part of the family of God. I wish we had more of this in the church where we had more openness to divergent ideas and it was okay and we can celebrate because we operate on the principles that we're all uh, finite beings moving along at different paces, coming from different places, having different perspectives, but we all have hearts that love the truth and want to grow in the truth. And so we want to hear those ideas and then flush them out and share them with each other. I think it would be great to have ongoing conversations with somebody from the um, penal legal camp and have open discussions back and forth, but... Very few of them ever want to really have those type of open discussions with me. I remember Graham Maxwell used to say that he had friends with whom he had significant theological disagreements and they would go back and forth and back and forth and and they would say they can't wait to get to heaven to ask Jesus who was right, but he would always remind us that uh, they had to be prepared for Jesus to look at them both and say, well, you know, the truth is you're both wrong. (laughs) And the point he was making is that if we don't have a willingness to be corrected with truth... If we don't have hearts that love truth, if we love our opinions and perspectives and things we hold to so much that truth will not move us, then we are no longer part of God's kingdom because God's kingdom is the kingdom of truth. We have to have hearts that love truth and move forward in the light, the lamp that is a light unto our feet. This is why we promote that principle that we want people to be lovers of truth, not lovers of a specific interpretation, a specific doctrine, a specific idea, but the truth itself, because we know truth is always unfolding. God is infinite and we're finite. And no matter what we understand today, it continues to unfold in advance. And we should be open to incorporate those advancements as we develop and move forward. Lesson uh, quotes 1 Corinthians four six, which says, Now, brothers, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos, For your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not take pride in one man over another. And then the second paragraph says, not to go beyond what is written does not exclude insights from other fields of study, such as biblical archaeology or history. Other fields may shed light on some biblical aspects and the background of scriptural passages and thus may help us understand the biblical text better. Nor does it exclude the help of, you know, that almost sounds like they're saying the, um, the, um, historical, um, what was that, uh, just blocked on that. The historical, uh, the historical critical method. (laughs) Because we're taking the cultural context. That's what they're describing, cultural context from archaeology. Uh nor does it exclude the help of other resources in the task of interpretation, such as lexicons, dictionaries, concordances, and other books and commentaries. However, in the proper interpretation of the Bible, the text of Scripture has priority over all other aspects, sciences, and and secondary helps. Other viewpoints have to be evaluated carefully from the standpoint of Scripture as a whole. I I think this is well said. We can't take other sources and use them to contradict or overturn what the Scripture actually teaches. But not to go beyond Scripture, not to go beyond Scripture. What does that mean? See, does it mean only contradicting Scripture, or does it mean adding things that are not necessarily contradictions? I think we would all agree we should never incorporate things that contradict Scripture. But does not go beyond Scripture mean that we can't add things to our experience that are not even in Scripture, as long as they're not contradictory to Scripture? Is that okay, or is that not okay? Some would interpret this very literally. You can't add to Scripture. You, it, it's not the right, you can't add anything. If it's not in Scripture, you can't do it. I'm not convinced that's what it means. I think it means that we don't contradict the Scripture. We're uh, Going beyond Scripture, perfectly fine to... Advance beyond as long as it doesn't contradict. Well, let me ask you some questions, see if you agree or disagree. Does Scripture teach that we should form denominations and have property and buildings built for church services owned by a corporate organization? Does the Scripture teach that we are to build corporate healthcare systems owned by the corporate church? Does the scripture teach that we are to use printing presses and electronic media in transcribing, printing, and distributing the Bible and other resources? Do we find structured church services with an opening prayer, opening song, passing the offering plate through the pews, special music, sermon, closing prayer, in a church building led from the front by a paid, entertainer. By a paid staff? Do we find that in Scripture? Do we find the practice of soliciting donations from unbelievers to support the church or the gospel ministry in the Bible? Some might call that ingathering. Do we find veganism in the post flood world taught in the Bible? Do we find total abstinence from alcohol for all human beings taught in the Bible? Does the scriptures teach whether we should or should not use digital devices on Sabbath or in worship services? You know, there are some very conservative Jewish people that will not use digital devices on Sabbath because it sparks. And if it sparks, using electricity it starts a fire and they can't start fires on Sabbath. So that question did not come out of randomness. It's a question. Do we go beyond scripture by using digital devices? My point is that as long as it doesn't contradict the Bible, we may continue to grow in advance in living out the Bible principles in ways the Bible never described. This is the difference between levels 1 through 4 moral development and levels 5 through 7. The first four levels are rules-oriented, obey or be punished. The higher levels are love and principles-oriented. Do what's right because it's actually right. No, There is no rule to love, and thus the specifics in how we do things can change as long as the principles than what we're accomplishing remain in harmony with God's design. We see the very same fracturing or division, maybe put that way, division of maturity, the rules, one through four level, versus the principles, the mature level, in our country right now dealing with the coronavirus. The point of all the interventions that have been brought to our attention by our governments is to stop the spread of the illness and prevent death. That's the point. With this in mind, some guidelines have been put in place to achieve the goal, such as no gathering of more than 10 people, washing hands regularly, don't touch your face, wear masks, especially if you're at risk, either at risk of spreading or risk of of uh, of uh, of get not just getting but of having a bad outcome, quarantine if you're sick or exposed to someone who's been sick, uh, no longer shaking hands or hugging and uh, touching in public people that uh, that are strangers and not very close in your intimate home. But some have approached this by making the guidelines into rules. It is no longer about avoiding the contact and spreading the disease. Now it's about enforcing rules. The rules have to be enforced. So a father who was in a park with his daughter throwing a ball and no one for hundreds of yards or around them gets handcuffed and put in a police car. Meaning the police had to come and make physical contact with him, breaking the principle, potentially exposing him or exposing themselves if he happened to have it, in order to enforce a rule. Those who understand the principle of avoiding contact yet still wanted to have an Easter service promoted a drive-in Sunday Easter service at their church where people would come into the parking lot, stay in their cars with their windows up and there would be a service given that they could hear in their car. But those who like rules, some government officials, however, sent the police in and went from car to car giving citations to the people. What does this mean? That the police going from car to car to enforce a rule are actually breaking the principles of quarantine and separation and maybe the very vectors that will carry a virus through the entire group who would not have been affected otherwise, if they, otherwise. this is where rule keeping without understanding principles leads to harm and injury, we see it across the landscape of society those of us who see principles see design law, this is why we get so sick of the rule keepers among us and the rule enforcers among us. Because we see how much it harms. And then when those same rule enforcers in the church tell you that they're they're representing God, and God is the ultimate rule enforcer, you can see how corrupt that really becomes. Monday's lesson. First paragraph. The Bible itself claims that all Scripture is God-breathed, and that no prophecy or Scripture came about by uh, men, uh, God as the Bible's ultimate author, we can assume, a with God as, uh, as the bi- ultimate author, we can assume a fundamental unity and harmony among the various parts of Scripture in regard uh, to the key issues it teaches. The Bible itself does not claim or even state that all scripture is inspired of God. What the Bible actually says is that all scripture which is inspired by God is useful for teaching, correcting, and training and correct and so and rebuking and so forth. It's useful if it's inspired by God. But it doesn't say all scriptures inspired by God. There are many scriptures that are not inspired by God. The Apocrypha, Pseudepigrapha, Book of Mormon, Koran, as far as I'm concerned, I don't see these as being inspired by God, but they're scriptures. So this statement by the lesson authors is a good example of why we are not to submit our thinking to other human beings. Because they make mistakes. Honest mistakes. Not maliciousness. Not seeking to deceive. Good hearted but they make mistakes. And if they make mistakes on something this basic, straightforward and simple, how can we just surrender our thinking to their conclusions on more complex ideas? So we don't surrender our thinking, but we respect them for their hard work, their motives, we consider what they have to say, but we take the position that Paul wrote in Romans 14, every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. And this is what I say repeatedly about our class. I'm not here to tell any of you what to think. Common reason doesn't exist to indoctrinate you into a certain way of thinking. We have a ministry to present ideas, concepts, to stimulate you, to motivate you to exercise your own God-given reasoning capacities, to, uh, because this is within harmony of the law of exertion. And the only way you get to mature and develop and grow is for you to think, reason, weigh the evidence is for yourself, and come to your own conclusions. We don't want a bunch of people who simply memorizes a bunch of answers, we want a bunch of people who have understood how reality works so you can reason through the problems and come to the right answers. So while I do not believe the authors know all the answers, for none of us know all the answers, I find value. In hearing how other people understand things and get and, and and evaluating their insights, examining them for myself in light of god's word, so I would not want to do away with the study guide um, as a resource because it's a very good tool to stimulate us to think and you see how how we use this we've been using this for years it's a very good tool to stimulate our thinking and let us examine things for ourselves, so I really appreciate it. Yes, we can assume in the last part of the paragraph that uh, a fundamental unity in Scripture. And if we assume that, though, why don't we have a fundamental unity in Christianity, if there's a fundamental unity in in the Scripture, because of the imperial law lie, and then and and, and no requirement for our understanding of Scriptures to harmonize with reality and God's design laws. Second paragraph states. Without the unity of the Bible, the church would have no means to distinguish truth from error and to repudiate heresy. Think about that for a minute. Without the unity of the Bible, the church would have no means to distinguish truth from error and repudiate heresy. Believing the Bible to be inspired by the Holy Spirit, such that it communicates consistent, non-contradictory truth, is an important concept. To understand, so that we can and do use utilize Scripture to help clarify truth and expose error. No question about it. It's a sword of truth, a, the the word, a two edged sword, exposing and dividing. So yeah, definitely used that way. Definitely. However, this does not mean that we can only differentiate truth and error from the Scripture. In fact, to truly differentiate truth from error, scripture must not only be compared with scripture, but science and l- how life actually works, experiences. If we fail to do this, then you and use only scripture, we introduce all kinds of false ideas, and this is what has led to so many divisions within Christianity. I've just made a claim that scripture is not the only means to differentiate truth from error. I just made a claim. Is there evidence to support my claim? You should ask that question. Don't believe it because I said, where's the evidence? Show it. Well, Jesus, when dealing with uh, theologians in his time, would sometimes use scripture to expose error and their hypocrisy. But if we look at how Jesus dealt with people, was quoting scripture his only method of revealing truth and exposing error? Well, consider the following parables. The parable of the landowner. Did that expose truth? The Good Samaritan. The speck in your eye versus the log in your eye. The new cloth on old garments. The sower. The wheat in the tares. The mustard seed. Leaven. The hidden treasure. The pearl of great price. The lost coin. The lost son. The lost sheep fishing. What goes in the mouth, food, does not defile the character. Laborers in the vineyard, the marriage feast, ten virgins, faithful and wicked servant, one, five, ten talents, the rich man and Lazarus, the publican and the tax collector. Did did all of these reveal truth and expose error? But they weren't quoting scripture. What were they doing? Using science nature, or real-life experiences. How reality works. The idea that Sola Scriptura means truth can only be promoted by an error only exposed by Scripture is a false tradition that we must reject. When we understand God's character, God as creator, his laws as design laws, how life really works the nature and character of sin. We can expose error and promote truth in many ways, all throughout life and life's experiences. But truth from science, let me say this very clearly, because I can hear the critics out there, truth from science, truth from nature, truth from life's experiences will never contradict truth in Scripture. Always harmonize. This is important because those who want to use Scripture only will often use Scripture to create false theologies, and they will be the foremost to condemn the integrative, evidence-based approach. They will take the position of spiritual, moral supremacy— claiming that they are true to the Bible, they honor the Bible, they respect the Bible, they make the Bible supreme over all other sources of information, and that by using nature and experience, we devalue and dilute the Bible, and thus they claim their positions are more biblically sound than ours. You will hear this. They do this because their positions are refuted and exposed as false. Their Bible doctrine positions are exposed as false by reality, by by God's design laws and how life actually works. And so they cannot require their ideas to be tested or harmonized with what God has actually built into reality. Thus they end up denying the truth while claiming to promote the truth, and we end up with 40,000 different Christian groups arguing over the Bible. Do we have other Bible examples, besides Jesus, of people exposing error and promoting truth by means other than quoting scripture? Well, how did Nathan expose to David his error with Bathsheba? He told him the, the story of a poor man and his ewe lamb. How did Micaiah expose to Ahab and Hezekiah that they should not go to war with Ramoth Gilead and that they were being lied to by false prophets? by telling a story about lying spirits in heaven. So even in the Bible, we have many examples of errors being exposed by means other than the messenger from God quoting scripture. In the last paragraph, the lesson points out a very, very good point. Again, many good things in the lesson. That the entire Bible must be taken together. All the various parts of scripture must harmonize with itself. When we allow Scripture to be divided, when we delete some, I take piece here and a piece there and don't use it all, then we end up with erroneous ideas. It's only when we harmonize it all that we really have the, and then harmonize with those other two threads, that we really stand confidently on truth. And the lesson asks us, though, what do we do when one verse of the Bible seems to contradict another verse of the Bible? And I thought this might be a fun place to take the story of Micaiah in 1 Kings 22, read a little section of it, and compare it to another Scripture, and say, what do you do with this? So this is 1 Kings 22, uh, starting in verse 19. And the setting is Ahab is trying to get, uh, who is the king of Israel, is trying to get Hezekiah, who is the king of Judah, to join him in a war against Ramoth-Gilead. And Hezekiah says to Ahab, "Um, don't we have a prophet? And Ahab says, oh yeah, we've had, uh, I think, 200 prophets already tell us we're going to win. These are prophets of Baal. And Hezekiah says, don't we have a prophet of the Lord? And Ahab says, oh, I hate the prophets of the Lord. They never say anything good about me. But they go ahead and call Micaiah anyway, who is a prophet of the Lord. And this is uh, what Micaiah says. Micaiah continued. Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing around him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth-Gilead and going to his death there? One suggested this and another that. Finally a spirit came forward, stood before the Lord, and said, I will entice him. By what means, the Lord asks, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets, he said. You will succeed in enticing him, says the Lord. Go and do it. So now the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouths of all these prophets of yours. The Lord has decreed disaster for you. That's 1 Kings 22. Yet James tells us, when tempted, no one should say God tempts, because God uh, God has tempted me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Does God lie or deceive do we accept First Kings 22 as inspired by God? Inspired by the Holy Spirit? Do we take it literally, the, God, the Bible said it, I believe it, that all, that's all there is to it. Or do we understand this passage through the lens of what the rest of the Bible teaches about God and through the design law lens of God? We should ask questions like, does God actually lie? Or is Satan the father of lies? Well, we know God doesn't lie. So then this must mean something else than its literal sound to it. Well, what does it mean? That God is sending a message to Ahab, a man who worships Baal. What happens in the mind of people who worship false gods? What happens to their minds? This, to answer this question, requires an understanding of design law. You see, Those who accept the period law of you, when you worship a false god, you've broken a rule, you've gotten in legal trouble, you've got a demerit in in your book of of heaven, and God will ultimately have to punish you for breaking the law and not obeying and worshiping the right God unless you uh, repent and ask for forgiveness. That demerit remains in your record book, and in the judgment, you're in trouble. That's levels one through four. But to actually answer the question requires a higher understanding of reality. That when we worship false gods, as the Old and New Testament tells us, our minds become darkened, our minds become depraved, our minds become futile. Our thinking does not advance, it darkens. Does a person who worships false gods grow in God's wisdom? Do their minds, or, or, or no, their minds become darkened. So will Ahab, a worshiper of Baal, be responsive to clear heavenly light? Will he understand heavenly truth, or will the wisdom of heaven be foolishness to a worshiper of Baal? What would a Baal worshiper believe to be true about the gods? That the true gods are the most powerful gods. Ahab worshipped a dictator god, a being who imposes his will and makes things happen. Even though Baal's mind is darkened, even though Baal is believing lies about God—excuse me. Even though Ahab's mind is darkened, even though Ahab is worshiping Baal and believing lies about God, does our God of love, uh, our God of love, still want to reach Baal? Uh, still want to reach Ahab? Does He want to free Ahab from the lies about Baal? Do, does He want Ahab to die, or does He want Ahab to repent and be saved? So, what type of message would God then? send to Ahab if God wants to save him. It would be a message to lead him would it be a message to lead him to his death or a message to lead him away from death? So if Ahab follows the message that Micaiah gave him does he go to war or does he not go to war? He does not go to war. So this story reveals that God in grace steps down and assumes the role of causing the lies and sending the Spirit in order to inform Ahab that the prophets he'd been listening to were lying to him and that going to war would result in his death. This is not about how things truly happen in heaven, but a message of mercy communicated in the only way the listener could comprehend that he had been lied to, all in order to give him an opportunity for salvation. Yes? wait, now we have now we have harmony God is shining light in Ahab's mind but Ahab still doesn't like it this is how we harmonize scripture, yes Um, I have three comments and maybe a question Linda Ojala says hi she says Satan used scripture to try to tempt Jesus in the wilderness, I think we talked about that before um and this person said, how could the SDA organization survive without this type of integrated evidence-based approach? Like, How does it survive at all without what you're describing, being able to harmonize the three? Okay. And I'm not going to speak to organizational politics and processes. We're, we're speaking of theological truths. have right, One okay. more. Okay. This is from Maria. People ask, why doesn't God just say what he means? Why does he seem so cryptic? For instance, God pouring out his wrath when it's not what he really means. For what I just said. I just explained um, here because he's speaking the language of the people that he's speaking to. Um, remember, the Bible teaches spiritual things are spiritually discerned. Well, wisdom of the world is foolishness um, uh, to the people of God, and the fo- and the wisdom of God is foolishness to the people of the world. If he tells them specifically how it works, it won't make any sense to them because they've already accepted it doesn't work that way. It works this way. This is how reality works. We know it works this way. Uh, Just think about it this way. We go back in time, 200 years, or back in time to the uh, 15th century, I think it was, 14th century, and um, and, uh, we're in Europe during the bubonic plague. And we begin to tell them about little tiny organisms that they cannot see that are causing disease. And that uh, we educate them about germ theory. Are the leading people of the day going to go, well, that makes sense to us. It's not the wrath of God. God isn't punishing people for sin. Or will they reject us and probably try to persecute us? Okay? Okay. So if we wanted to reach the people, we would have to actually speak that language. we say, yes, this is a punishment from God, but God has given us a prescription, and if we do these things, we need to go to church, and we need to get holy water, and we need to take that holy water home, we need to wash our houses, and we need to wash our hands, and we need to do this three times a day, and before every meal, and we need to do this in between this, and we need to bathe regularly with this holy water, because only with this holy water will we, and we, and, but it's, we know it's not holy, it's, it's, it's getting into the germs. but if you presented it like that, they would probably do it, and we would save lives. This is what you're dealing with much of the time in the scripture. It's the same reason that God didn't tell the children of Israel after leading them out of of Egypt, love your enemies. They they would have rejected it outright. He had to say, no, only an eye for an eye, only a tooth for a tooth, only a life for And eventually leads to the love of the Lord your God and all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. Yes. Yes. And and, uh, as they morally develop the levels. Tuesday's lesson first paragraph The biblical testimony is unambiguous. The Bible is sufficiently clear in what it teaches. The Bible is also, the Bible is so clear that it can be understood by children and by adults alike, especially in its most basic teachings. And yet, there are endless opportunities for our knowledge and understanding to grow deeper. We do not need ecclesiastical magisteriums to provide the biblical meaning for us. And it assumes the priesthood of believers. I think this again is a really, really great point. It's exactly right. We do not need to surrender our theological conclusions. And I will tell you, in many church organizations, including the Seventh-day Adventist organization, while they articulate this Bible principle I just read, here it's printed, they often don't practice it. I've personally experienced um, various church leaders not thinking, not reading, not examining things that we teach for ourselves, but shoveling it off to a theologian at some institute, asking them to evaluate it and render a ruling, and then they just go with the ruling without ever evaluating it for themselves. So, that type of practice of of allowing some external theological organization or ruling body to make a theological ruling for you is not biblical. Uh, We are to be like the Bereans who study the things out for themselves and every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. I'm going to uh, move on to Wednesday's lesson. Second paragraph. The beauty of letting Scripture interpret Scripture is that it also sheds further light on its own meaning. In doing so, we do not indiscriminately string together various passages to prove our opinion. Instead, we carefully take into consideration the context of each passage. Besides the immediate context before And after uh, a passage under investigation, we should take into consideration the context of the of the uh, book in which it is found, and furthermore, the context of all Scripture. I think, again, this is well said. I love this because it's exactly right. We should understand the grand central theme, and, and then they quote from the book Education, page 190, the Bible is its own expositor. Scripture is to be compared with Scripture. The student should learn to view the Word as a whole, to see the relation of its parts. He should gain the knowledge of its grand central theme, of God's original purpose for the world, of the rise of the great controversy and of the work of redemption. This is exactly right. Learning to see the grand central theme in Scripture, which is the controversy over God's character, methods, and government, which sees God in his true setting as creator and builder of reality, which understands God's laws as design laws, and sees the enemy as the liar who tries to break the circle of love and trust by getting us to believe lies, and those primary lies are about God's laws not being design laws, but simply being rules, which then makes us view God as the enforcer of rules whom we need to be protected from, and that the pain and suffering comes out from God rather than pain and suffering coming out from from breaking the laws and from sin itself. And this is the core. And when we see that, then we see the original purpose of the creation of earth, which was the crowning work of creation to build a creation that would um in many ways function as a microcosm of the universe with a with a um Uh, Intelligence that had capacity for procreation and unity to create beings in their image and to have dominion to govern other beings and the whole ecosystem designed on the law of love and everything living to give to others and to receive in love from others. It was a beautiful, incredible creation that God built and thus Satan targeted Adam and Eve to efface or to remove God's design of love from their hearts and minds and to replace it with fear and selfishness and rules-oriented and authoritarian and dictatorship practices, which is exactly what happens. And so Jesus says, all the governments of the world now, they don't represent my kingdom because they, represent, they, they operate on a different set of laws. They operate on rules. My kingdom operates on the uh, principles upon which reality operate, ultimately the law of love. So we see this process. And after Adam and Eve fall, we see that the entire Old Testament scripture has a central theme. And it, it is right after the fall, the Messiah is promising the the seed of the woman is coming to crush the serpent's head and to offer us salvation. And the old, entire Old Testament then is the forces of evil trying to stop, the forces of God trying uh, working to keep open and keep the plan of salvation moving forward. And so with that in mind, the Bible, when you have this perspective, it all falls into place and it all makes sense. But when we stand up the stories, the standalone stories, then we can often take here a little, there a little, and the stories don't make sense. And in fact, they're twisted around to support the lie that God is the source of pain, suffering, and and punishment. The last paragraph: When we compare scripture with scripture, it is important to study the Bible thoroughly. If possible, we should do so in its original languages or at least with an appropriate Bible translation faithful to the meaning contained in the original Hebrew and Greek. The knowledge of the original languages is not necessary to have a good understanding of the Bible. It certainly helps when possible. So, no doubt there is great value in being able to understand the original languages. However, the various lexicons available today make knowing the languages not necessary to be a language expert. And aren't we thankful for that? Um, there are, and there are actually even problems. Even if you do know the languages, there are still problems. The further back one goes in antiquity, the less the la- today's language experts really understand the language. That's why even if you go to the lexicons uh, for Hebrew. In many places in the lexicons, they'll say things like Hebrew unclear, Hebrew unknown. But yet, those passages still get translated, meaning that the translators are basically using their best educated guesses because they don't actually know what the words mean. But as an example of how language changes over time, uh, we can go back just um, to the 14th century, 500 uh, or 600 years or so, and... uh, Read, I will try, I will try, and you can laugh at me, to read from Luke 8, 1 and 2 from Wycliffe's original English Bible with Middle English. And then I will read the translation in today's English. But this is, um, the best I can possibly do, okay, of uh, the Middle English of uh, of Wycliffe. Uh, this is Luke 8, 1 and 2. And it was done after it, uh, and su made urne by, Site uh, and casu, casalis, and elanglising be rhythm, of God, and tule vib him and, uh, women, women batvent, helid and wicked, spiritus on skylandness uh, Maria, uh, Marie bat uh, is cleped Malvind, uh, of whom Suen dulis venten. Amen. That was English. Did it sound English to you? That was Middle English. This is why, if we went back in time, we really couldn't communicate with people in England. This is that same passage in today's English, um, translated from the Wycliffe Bible. And it came to pass afterward that Jesus went through every city and village uh, preaching and showing the kingdom of God and the twelve were with him and certain women which had been healed of wicked spirits and sickness, Mary called Magdalene out of whom went seven devils. I'm just pointing out just going back 600 years to Middle English, we don't have clarity today of what those words meant. Going back 3,000 years to Hebrew, the Hebrew today is not really um, all we well understood. And then the most important thing in my view, in in, uh, proper Bible understanding and translation, is not the languages, but understanding the character of God, his design laws, and the great controversy. If you hold the, a degree in the languages, but you don't understand the great controversy, you believe God uh, is the rule-giver, like human laws, and therefore justice requires he punish, you will misunderstand, even though you understand the right words. I thought it would maybe be a little bit fun to um, read a couple of passages from Scripture uh, from a couple of different versions showing how the versions will take the same Greek words in the New Testament and then we'll do one from the Psalms. We'll do one from the New Testament, one from the Psalms uh, and uh, show show how they come across different. So we're going to do Romans three twenty one through 26 from the NIV, from the Good News and then from the Remedy and then we'll do one of the Psalms. This is uh, the NIV. But now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes and I want you to think I want you to listen to this and I'm reading it if it makes plain sense to you and you could explain it exactly for what it means if this English language translation connotes so clearly the truth that you now I understand that I can explain it. So let's 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 keep going here. Um has been made which um to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice, because it, in his forbearance he has left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did this to demonstrate his justice at the present time so so as, t- so as to be just, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. That's the NIV. Listen to the good news. Same passage, same Greek, uh, tra- used as the translation. Listen to this. and Same question. Can you explain what that meant? How would you explain what that meant? Listen to this. But now God's way of putting people right with himself has been revealed. It has nothing to do with law, even though the law of Moses and the prophets gave their witness to it. God put people right through their faith in Jesus Christ. God de- God does this to all who believe in Christ because there is no difference at all. Every ha- Everyone has sinned and is far away from God's saving presence. But by the free gift of God's grace, all are put right with him through Christ Jesus, who sets them free. God offered him so that by his blood he shed, by his blood he should become the means by which God's... I'll say that sentence over. God offered him so that by his blood he should become the means by which people's sins are forgiven through their faith in him. God did this in order to demonstrate that he is righteous. In the past he was patient and overlooked people's sins, but in the present time he deals with their sins in order to demonstrate his righteousness. In this way God shows that he himself is righteous and that he puts right everyone who believes in Jesus does that sound just like we read out of the NIV? God is just and must be just and so forth and the sacrifice of atonement. And then this is the remedy. But now God has revealed a healthy state of being, a character that is right and perfect in every way. That did not come from the written code, but is exactly what the scripture and the Ten Commandments are pointing your minds toward. This perfect state of being comes from Christ and is created within us by God when we place our trust in him. Our trust in him is established by the evidence given through Jesus Christ of his supreme trustworthiness. There is no difference among any ethnic groups, for all humanity is infected with the same disease of distrust, fear, and selfishness, and is deformed in character and falls far short of God's glorious ideal for humanity. Yet all who are willing are healed freely by God's gracious remedy, which has been provided by Jesus Christ. God prevented Jesus as the way and means of restoration." Now through trust, through the trust established by the evidence of God's character revealed when Christ died, we may partake of the remedy procured by Christ. God did this to demonstrate that he is right and good, because in his forbearance he suspended for a time the ultimate consequences of being out of harmony with his design for life. Yet he has been falsely accused as being unfair. He did it to demonstrate at the present time how right and good he is, so that he would be seen as being right when he heals those who trust in Jesus. And then we'll do uh, a quick one out of uh, Psalms. This is Psalms 32, uh, 3 and 4. This is the Good News Bible. When I did not confess my sins, I was worn out from crying all day long. Day and night you punished me, Lord. My strength was completely drained as moisture is dried up by the summer heat. And then the King James Version. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old. Through my roaring all the day long. For day and night, thy hand was heavy upon me, my moisture is turned into drought of summer into the drought of summer, and then the remedy when I held on to my guilt and shame, refusing to talk to God, I stressed myself, and my body decayed because every day I screamed no," denying the truth, But day and night, your healing hand pressed firmly upon me, my resistance evaporated like water in the summer heat. And then we're going to close with Thursday's lesson. And Thursday's lesson is a look at a couple points about Ellen White and her ministry in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Some have struggled with the idea, did she have the gift of prophecy? Did she not have the gift of prophecy? And they get all hung up on, was she a prophet? Was she not a prophet? And, uh, oh, I'm not going to believe that because you claim she's a prophet. It's a completely simple solution. Some, and, it's, and it's cleared up with some very simple questions. By the way, some who want to insist she's a prophet, they want to do it because they don't want to think for themselves, and they want the teacher. It's like, Te- uh, the teacher said they want some external authority they can look to, get a quote, and have the answer. They don't want to actually understand why it's the answer. They just want someone to give them the answer so they like Ellen White being a prophet so they can go to the writings and find an answer, rather than understanding the answer for themselves. And uh, But that being said, it's very simple to clear this up with anybody who has concerns. It's a blast question. According to scripture, are spiritual things spiritually discerned? Which means that we sinful human beings cannot understand the things of God without the Holy Spirit enlightening our mind. So, to the degree any human being speaks the truth about God, it is only possible for them to do so by the enlightenment and the work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts and minds. Whether it's Billy Graham, Martin Luther, or Ellen White. All such writings, including and we've already read about it, including Ellen White herself, must be compared to Scripture, and we only value them once they're confirmed to speak truth. So the question is not whether she was gifted, that's irrelevant. The relevant question is, does what she wrote harmonize with Scripture? So thus her writings have value to the degree they speak truth, not because she wrote them. And this is where many people, again, levels one through four, well, Ellen White said it, therefore it's true. No. Wrong. Ellen White wrote it. Go check scripture. Is it true? Why is it true? Now you can value it because it's true. Second point that has caused some confusion regarding Ellen White came up a few decades ago when scholars discovered that within her writings there are texts that were copied from other sources. This led to the allegation of plagiarism, and this caused a lot of confusion. Well, if she plagiarized, then how could it be inspired, and we can't trust anything she's written? Very again, simple, so simple. Imagine you had a family member who was dying of a terminal illness. Your doctor said there's nothing to do, and in fact, hospice has been called in. You go online and find a medical journal article in which a cure is described for your loved one's very condition. In desperation, having nothing to lose, you give them the recommended remedy. And sure enough, it works. They are cured and restored to perfect health. Not only that, but over the next several decades, millions of people with the same condition take the remedy described in the journal article, and they are also cured. In fact, it's cured everyone who's taken it. But then, scholars discover that the author who published it plagiarized it from some other source. It wasn't their original work. What would you do? Would you go, oh well, guess it's not true. Or would you go, it doesn't really matter the source. The only question is, is it true and does it work? Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you are the source of truth. That you are the creator of all reality. And that your spirit that inspired the this, this scripture is the spirit that leads us into truth. And so we ask that your spirit be poured out. Let our minds understand the truth, harmonized with your Uh, designs that you have built into reality and how life actually works. Help us differentiate from the lies that cause confusion. Help us to be settled into your truth, both intellectually and spiritually, that nothing can move us and that we will be enabled at this time in history when people are looking for real answers, to give them answers about our real creator God and how your reality actually works. We pray in your holy name. Amen.